I'd like to acknowledge that this broadcast is coming to you from stolen Gadigal land and pay my respects to Gadigal elders past, present and emerging. Gadigal people have been sharing stories and songs on this land since the beginning of time. This always was and always will be Aboriginal land. A quick heads up for listeners, this episode contains discussions of racism. If this brings anything to the surface for you or you just need to talk to someone, you can always call Lifeline on 13 11 14. Record Collections and Recollections. Out of the Box with Mia Hull on FBI Radio. Hey, big thanks to Eddie Diamond for taking you through the morning today on FBI Radio. My name is Mia Hull and this is Out of the Box. This show is live to air midday through to 1pm on FBI Radio and of course available to stream on the podcast at your convenience. I sit down with one person each week and roll through the records of their life and the stories behind them. Today I'm joined by Sweatshop Literacy Movement writer Tyree Barnett. Originally from Raleigh, North Carolina, Tyree and his partner have lived here since 2012. He holds space not only as a writer, but as a co-owner of a Southern-style pop-up at Sydney Vegan Market and a careers advisor at Macquarie University. Tyree's stories have been published by the SBS and in multiple sweatshop anthologies, and he joins me right now to talk about them on FBI Radio. Thanks for joining me on the show today, Tyree. Thanks for having me, Mia. Great to be here. Your story starts in Raleigh, North Carolina. Can you paint a picture of that for me? Sure. So Raleigh, uh, North Carolina, Raleigh is the state capital. Um, North Carolina is actually one of the more progressive states in the South. It's North Carolina is in the southeast of the U.S., so thinking between New York and Florida, um, uh, between Virginia and South Carolina, and the quality of life is quite good. Uh, there are some top-rated universities in the area, three of them, um, so we have a number of different people from all across the U.S. move to Raleigh for different work opportunities, um, so it was a great place to grow up. What were your parents doing for work when you were growing up? Sure. So my mom was uh, a financial analyst, uh, accounting pretty much. And then my dad, for most of the time, was working for the Department of Transportation um, as a, uh, I think, within IT, so within the IT systems. And then later on, he worked for the Department of Disability Services in IT as well as security. Um, so uh, one state job, my mom worked pretty much privately for private companies. You said it's a good place to go to school. Did you have a pleasant experience going to school there? I did for the most part. Um, my parents lived on live on the, the quote-unquote nice in the town. So we went to school. There was not a lot of black kids. I could probably count them on a couple of hands in terms of my graduating class. And um, I had a lot of good teachers that would challenge me. And, and a few of them were black, actually. Um, so that was always nice um, to be able to have that identify with someone. Um, and the schools are huge. I was talking to uh, a friend of mine out here. We had around over 2,000 students in my high school. Oh, my goodness. He was like, out here, that's unheard of. Yeah. You, you might have a, a few hundred at yeah. most, and that's it. As big as Sydney is, that's amazing. But, yeah, large high school. <laughs> did you do much outside of school? So I did play recreational basketball. Uh not in any like very competitive level. Uh, I love playing basketball, and um, I played for like just uh, some small leagues and and like small city leagues. Um, I was heavily involved in Boy Scouts. 
um, growing up. Um, that was that actually gave me a lot more, I guess, exposure and, and confidence in things than I realized. Um, I was also part of the newspaper in high school for a couple of years. And um, when you say you were heavily involved in Boy Scouts, was that your choice or your parents? You know, eventually my parents, uh, I went all the way to to finish out as an Eagle Scout, which is the highest um, rank you can get. Once once you're an Eagle Scout, you're you're either sticking around for extra badges or you're done because by that time you're 18. And so you're 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 an adult. Um, so it's 18-year-olds doing Eagle Scouts? Correct. So ideally, the cutoff is 18 and a half. After 18 and a half, you can no longer apply. I think I applied right at 18 and a half, so my application had to be pretty much flawless because if I got knocked back, that was it. Do many Boy Scouts become Eagle Scouts? If I remember correctly, it was 2%. Wow. Um, so very rare. What it, made you want to do that? You know, mostly my parents because um, I was ready to just kind of walk away from it. It, it was time-consuming. You have to accumulate a certain number of merit badges, um, I think around at least maybe 15 to 18 all up. Um, And each merit badge is like a mini project. And so let's say, for instance, I did one on uh, personal accounting. So I had to keep my own budget for a few months. I had to, um, you know, this is going back now 20 years ago. So I had to do a spreadsheet, you know, um, uh, and had to write it down on paper and then put it into Microsoft Excel, which is still a very new thing back then, and uh, our newer thing. And you had to do other requirements on top of that uh, small project, uh, keep a track of receipts. And, and wow. um, yeah, so it got very detailed. And that was just for one badge. And, and you is, had to get around 17. Is that because Eagle Scouts is for adults? Like, I feel like in Boy Scouts, you're learning to tie knots and start fires. And That's then... early on. Yeah. Exactly. And then as you go older, get older and go through the ranks, it then becomes more about life skills. Wow. So things like cooking and nowadays they probably have, you know, all sorts of more modern things, probably podcasting and all kinds of stuff. But they, they did every time a a new either life skill or a new, I guess, employable skill came out, they tried to have a merit badge to us. There was some for cooking, some for woodwork, some for um, um, like out, just outdoor camping, you know, kind of basic survival skills, nothing nothing too crazy, I guess. Um, I did one merit badge where I had to, it was a swimming badge, I had to fashion a flotation device out of a pair of jeans um, in like a YMCA pool. Does it work? Yeah, you basically just blow <laughs> you blow into the uh, into the waist. You tie the legs together, and it, it, luckily, if you have a belt, you tie the waist together, and then the middle part floats. Amazing! And so you, can, you can float on that for a bit. I hope that comes in handy for you one day. You know, <laughs> if I'm ever on Bondi, pantsless in the water, that, yeah. might, that might last all the few seconds before a wave takes me out. So you were saying before at your school you didn't have a lot of black teachers or anything. Did you have more black role models doing Eagle Scouts? Yes. Uh, our troop was um, unique in that we we're an all-black troop. Um, we were part of a black church. Um, a lot of our uh, boys actually went on to become Eagle, Eagle Scouts, and so we had a pretty high turnover of Eagle Scouts as well. Um, and so we were pretty high profile. Um, the Similar to Girl Scouts, they have like Girl Scout cookies that they sell for fundraisers. Boy Scouts sell popcorn. We would always rank highly in terms of popcorn sales for our council or district. And so we got to go on a lot of cool trips as well um, to spend the money. Uh, so, so yeah, so I had a lot of people to look up to ahead of me who got their Eagle Scout badge before I did. So it was, it was kind of expected. You know, we were pushed to, to do that. 
And you were saying you were learning life lessons like making flotation devices and making Excel spreadsheets. Being in an all-black Eagle Scouts troop, do you learn lessons in the context of being a black person growing up in America? There was definitely a push to on how to carry ourselves. Um, our Scoutmaster, his name was Keith Randleman. I will not ever forget that name. He was a very impactful uh, leader. He encouraged us to also articulate ourselves well, express ourselves completely um, and with, with good grammar, to keep our pants pulled up, to be mindful of our surroundings, and to, to just set a good example, especially for the younger kids that were also in the same troop that were looking up to us. You know, a, a portion of the kids, I'd imagine as well, some of them didn't have father figures necessarily at that time, at that particular time. And so I imagine some of the either the scout leaders or some of the other older boys may have been a role model for them as well. That's not, of course, the case for every boy, but I do remember distinctly a few boys um, and, and at least one or two moms being like, you know, can you look after my son? Can you uh, make sure you set a good example for him? That sort of thing. And yeah, a lot of the boys, um, from what I've been able to keep in loose touch with, went on to to be successful and and to and to um, yeah to have really good uh, rewarding lives after that. What do you think it means to have that expectation put on you that you have to be able to speak well and have your pants pulled up and be an amazing member of society? You know, it's two pronged. It's I think about it two ways. One, it's it's you know it's good that you have that instilled in you, and that uh, you know how to carry yourself, you know how to express yourself uh, without a temper, without you know physicality, just with your words. At the other side, though, it's it's um it's almost like almost also why do I have to hold myself at such a high standard when I see others around me who don't look like me who do far less and get away with far more. And so, you know, it's also about, I guess, looking at the different standards that are set for certain populations versus others. Um, you know, we all know this the, the story, I've heard stories about if you're black in America or even if you're black in Australia, you get arrested for, you know, small, inconsequential things. Where if you're white, you can get away with plenty of things. And it's even become like a Twitter thread of things I got away with because I was white. You know, and that black people would never think twice about doing and not expect repercussions. I want to pass the mic over to Outcast. What's the first song you've chosen for today? So the first song was uh, AT Aliens, and that is off of oh, this, uh, the, the album's the same name. That was pretty much our soundtrack to every camping trip we went to as Boy Scouts. Um, it brings back very positive memories of just those outings with other boys, and um, every kid in our, in our troop either had an outcast cd because we had cds back then or cassette tape because we had cassette tapes too back then um and we would always play in the van on the way to and from camping trips it's at aliens by outcast on fbi radio 94.5 and this one comes with a language warning It was Outcast and AT Aliens on FBI Radio, a track chosen by my guests on Out of the Box, Tyree Barnett. Right now we are rolling through the records of Tyree's life and talking about the stories behind them. Tyree, this isn't your first time broadcasting stories. You come from a journalism background. 
Tell me about that. That's correct. Um, I always loved uh, writing and telling stories, uh, but initially I didn't think I could make a living as just a writer. And so I picked something that I thought was close enough to telling stories, so I majored in journalism, and I spent around uh, seven years in local television news in the States. So essentially where I worked was a localized version of ABC News. It's a 24-hour news channel with sports, weather, and all that, but it was just for a very localized area of around maybe three um, hours drive kind of a, of a radius, you know, from, from one end to the other. Um, and, and so, yeah, so that's, I thought that was writing. It actually isn't. Uh, writing for TV is not, is not creative writing. It's very simplistic, boiled down writing. Um, but it, it, it was still a great experience and that I, I still got a lot of um, transferable skills out of it, a lot of resilience out of it. Um, and I got to learn a little bit about a lot of things being a journalist. You're kind of a jack-of-all-trades, master of none, so to, so to speak. Why did you eventually walk away from that? I got, um, after a while, you always get, you, you get jaded and you get a weird kind of dark sense of humor, mostly because working in the news in the U.S. is different than Australia, or at least I think it is, in that it's all about, I think, a lot of just if it bleeds, it leads, and telling a lot of, like, negative, scary, uh, uh, bad news, you know, murders, fires, fatal car accidents, you know, kind of just a litany of those things. And so after a while, I, I started to wonder, like, how am I actually benefiting the community of, of listeners or, or, or viewers? What am I What am I informing them of? Yeah, we do tell them some useful information, but it's normally buried behind you know, the A block or the first kind of commercial break of just horror. And so after a while, I just wondered, like, what am I doing and how am I benefiting society? Am I making any sort of difference? So I, when I figured that I wasn't, then I, I wanted to do something else where I could see an immediate impact. So where did you go? So I ended up, um, there was a small private university in my hometown that was going co-ed. They had been all girls for their entire history, just about. Uh, it was called Peace College, and they changed their name to William Peace University when they went co-ed. And so they needed a male, in what we call an admissions counselor, which is essentially um, uh, a person that goes out to the high schools, talks to kids about applying, talks about our scholarships, sports, and other competitive offerings, and gets kids to apply to the university. Um, and so marketing, essentially. And so I got involved in that. Uh, partially because I had a professor from my uni that taught there. And I think she played a big role in helping me get that job because I was not qualified at all. But I could communicate well, and I knew how to listen, and I knew how to, to, how to adapt um, quickly from working in news. You'd have to, okay, what is this story about? Let me look a few things up quickly so that I could seem like a semi-expert and let me write out this 45-second story about it or, or what have you. Um, and so I was able to, to work there and I enjoyed it better because I could see my impact in terms of young people going to university, discovering confidence, growing in themselves, and then making a difference into the uh, campus community as well. Let's play a song by the King of Pop. What have you picked for today? Sure. So I went back, way back, to uh, Jam by Michael Jackson. He was pretty much my childhood. I was a huge Michael Jackson fan growing up. This is Jam by Michael Jackson. You're tuned into Out of the Box with Ryder, Tyree Barnett, and me, Mia Hull. Yeah. 
You're listening to FBI Radio 94.5 DAB, or if you're streaming online, that was Michael Jackson and Jam right here on Out of the Box, a show that welcomes love stories with open arms. Tyree, where did you and your wife meet? So we met uh, at a bar in downtown Raleigh, or the CBD in Raleigh. Uh, it was two parts. It's the porch and the basement. We met at the upper level of the porch. Um, and uh, so I, I was in the, in the bar with some friends, saw a woman across the dance floor. Uh, she had on a sweater uh, and some jeans, so not particularly club attire. But she had a very striking face. She had uh, short, curly hair, um, very closely cropped. Um, she has a very expressive face. Um, and so she called my attention from across the bar. I didn't have any clever pickup lines or anything. I just walked up to her, hey, how you doing? I think I just started dancing with her straight away. And then we started chatting. Uh, realized we had a few people in common. Um, and I got her phone number. And then I called her maybe, I got, I, I, got, I got cold. So I called her, ended up calling her maybe five days later. So it was just within the window of where you typically call someone for the first time yeah. without sounding too desperate. <laughs> Yeah. And what happened from there? So our first conversation, she traveled a lot for work. She works in clinical research. So she was actually driving in Puerto Rico, which is um, a territory of the U.S., which is south of the continental United States. I had no idea she was driving. Otherwise, I would have let her go a long time ago. We ended up talking for about three hours because I, I remember I had to plug in my cell phone because my battery died. Um, and our first date, I think, was maybe a week later, maybe a week and a half later, when she had a break with travel. Um, we went to a bar. Um, imagine that, went to a bar. <laughs> and uh, we watched a college basketball game. Um, and I think maybe our respective schools were playing, if I'm not mistaken. Pretty sure mine won. <laughs> um, and, yeah, it started. we started kind of hanging out continually from there and yeah, grew into now a 10-year marriage and two kids. And two kids, amazing. Tell me about your kids. So uh, Hampton is four now. He was had, we just had his birthday party this past weekend. He turned four on the 26th of April. Um, Miles is two. Miles actually was born on Australia Day. Um, so And so his second birthday was obviously back in January. Uh, they're great. Uh, active, smart, and will, yeah, will always keep you laughing and keep, and keep your, your eye on them because they're always up to something. You've learned a lot being Hampton's dad. Mm -hmm. Why is that? So Hampton is, he has been, I guess, being diagnosed with a social communication disorder. It's a, it's on the kind of the tip of the autism spectrum where it's not, um, uh, it's kind of a newly discovered, um, uh, I guess, area on the wider spectrum of autism where he has trouble at times with basic uh, norms of communication. So when you're talking to people, looking at them, or um, or saying hello, or saying goodbye, or um, pronouns, he, he has tr uh, trouble with at times. And so we've had to be much more purposeful with teaching him language uh, and with helping him to express himself. So we've um, enlisted the assistance of uh, occupational uh, therapists and speech therapists, as well as um, a few different uh, programs, which are have all been either low cost or free, which are great, that assist you with how to communicate with your child 
when their language and, and speaking ability is kind of, um, uh, I guess, not keeping pace with getting school ready. And so a lot of the interventions we're doing are now so that he's able to catch up. And we've really noticed a, a big difference uh, so far. We've seen a couple breakthroughs where he's really starting to turn a corner um, with communication. And also speaking with kids his own age is, is really the biggest hurdle in communicating with other three, four, and five-year-olds and, and having an active play is kind of the next phase that we want to go to. A lot of extra lessons to teach him. Exactly. And talking about extra lessons to teach him, you were talking before about your time in Eagle Scouts and how growing up as a black person, you're taught a certain way to carry yourself. Is that something that you've tried to impart on your boys as well? I think I will as I get older. Um, I, we're always mindful, my wife and I, of like their behavior in public. We never want them to be classified as bad simply because they're black, you know, or because, or really, I mean, all kids kind of have their phases where one day they just don't listen. Or they're, or they're just kind of having their own agenda. And so we're always mindful of kind of how far astray they get um, because we don't want them to be stigmatized um, as really they're just a kid who happens to be black who's like just not listening at that particular time. Same as any other kid, you know, but we don't want any other stigma put on them because of stereotypes. And so while we've, you know, we're loosely mindful of that now, as we're growing older, we will start talking to them around how to conduct themselves in public, who they're hanging out with, what the people around them are doing, and if anything is kind of going south, like how to make an exit. Because if something goes down and and you know and and authorities are called, don't expect to be treated the same way that other people who don't look like you are treated. It's sad that that's a lesson that you have to teach them. Do you think that lesson changes in the context of Australia? At this point, I would say no. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna be still cautious, still have the same mindset, um, and and still teach them the, the same as I'll teach them in the U.S., especially when it comes to law enforcement, uh, simply because I'm not yet fully uh, aware enough and comfortable enough with how uh, the actions of law enforcement here, uh, specifically to African Americans and to my sons, you know, for that specific population. I want to go back to the wedding of you and your wife, Tracina. Sure. What song was playing at your first dance? So it was Is This Love by Bob Marley. We picked it, I guess, because it was just the most fitting song for what was happening in that moment. Um, it's a beautiful song. And, um, yeah, we're both, we're both reggae fans. Uh, and, and so I think it fit the moment. It kind of slowed the pace of things. It was kind of a, a bit of a rushed affair. It wasn't planned to be that way. But it kind of slowed the pace of things, and we were, able to, we were able to catch our breath as well as our guests quite well. So it was a beautiful moment. And so that, yeah, that song always has fond memories from me. Let's play it now on FBI Radio. It's Is This Love by Bob Marley. Is this love, is this love, is this love, is this love that I'm feeling? Bob Marley. It was Is This Love on FBI Radio 94.5. Right now on Out of the Box, I'm chatting to sweatshop literacy movement writer Tyree Barnett. We're revisiting the important moments in Tyree's life through the songs that have meant something special to him. 
Tyree, you and Tracina moved to Australia just after you got married. What drove that decision? Yeah, so we had always wanted to live abroad. Uh, and at that time, we were not quite 30. And so we were, and our families were good. Everyone was, was, was in good health. And we were looking at, okay, where could we live for a year or two? Um, and so then we settled on Australia between Sydney and Melbourne because we saw it was, okay, it's, it's westernized. It's similar to the U.S. It's English-speaking. Um, it's really, really far, you know, so it's going to be a big commitment. But after she had her first interview, she felt, she felt like, look, I'm going to get the job. She had another interview after that. But she felt really good about the office, about the, the colleagues, the managers. Um, and, and, yeah, we were excited to see another part of the world. And we were curious to see Australia. We had never been to this part of the world at all. And so you started looking for work when you arrived? Yes. So we arrived at the end in December of 2012. So it was around the middle of the month. And then middle of that month of January is when I started looking for a job. And I started working early March. So once I figured out kind of how, how things work in terms of applications and all, it didn't take too long. That job that you got was at Macquarie University? Correct. Yes. So that's where I ended up. Uh, so Macquarie University called for a job within their campus well-being team as, um, as like basically an administrative assistant. I jumped on it, um, and I've been there ever since. But on the side, you're cooking. Well, I don't know if you're cooking, but you're a part of a pop-up called Southern Soul. Correct. Tell me about that. Cool. Yep. I, I do. I help cooking for, with cooking every now and then. Every now um, and then. Every now and then, <laughs> when, when I'm needed. Um, so my wife and my mother-in-law had an idea of um, we grew up uh, eating special occasions what's called soul food, which is basically black American food from the South. And so when you think of like there's a number of restaurants out here that sell it, um, things like fried chicken, pulled pork, barbecue ribs, mac and cheese, collard greens what we call them, um, a lot of soul food is... Uh, is, or a lot of what's called soul food is actually southern food, and it's not soul food. Soul food is, was created by the enslaved, enslaved Africans, and so it's very simplistic um, in its build and in its re- recipes. Um, and, so, and it's also very much vegetarian and vegan-based in terms of, of its roots. And so my wife wanted to reintroduce and better illustrate the origins of soul food to the Sydney populace after seeing the kind of commercialized and rushed representations here so far, and frankly overpriced and not as good, representations of soul food. And so we wanted to do it from an authentic and honest standpoint. And we thought, uh, especially she thought, that it should be vegan, even though we're not vegan, because that's kind of where things are going. The future of, I think, global diets is going to be more vegan, be more plant-based. And then also um, fish to, to, again, illustrate to people that the one of the stigmas of soul food is that it's unhealthy because of all the meats, all the cholesterols, all the fats and sugars, when in reality it is no more healthy than Italian food or French food. It's probably a slightly better because it doesn't have as many of the butters and fats because, again, it's out of scarcity, so it's out of just what's around you, um, very basic ingredients. So that was uh, the idea that launched um, the, the market stall that now, that now is uh, featured every, every month at the Sydney Vegan Market. Are they family recipes that you're using as well? Primarily, yes. So they, they either, they're family recipes or they're recipes that she's taken and taken, obviously, the, 
the meat products out and added in other substitutes that would still give you the same taste and the same texture. Um, but yeah, some of them are kind of family recipes or things that, or yeah, family recipes that she wants to sell. Um, and so, yeah, overall, there's a few dozen, I think, different recipes she has that, you know, she's looking to kind of slowly roll out. What are some of the favorites from Southern Soul? So our top seller is the macaroni and cheese. We call it the best mac and cheese because that's what people call it. Um, and alongside that is the cornbread, which is, we made it from polenta. Um, it's called cornbread because uh, you typically traditionally would use ground up maize um, or raised ground up corn um, to create the bread. Um, we use polenta because it still gives it that golden kind of corn um, like color. Um, also, we we have a, a jackfruit jackfruit barbecue um, as a kind of a pulled pork version. Yum. And then we also have, um, make sure I get the, the names right, we, we have what we call fried chicken tenders, where we actually take the jackfruit, um, we freeze it uh, in kind of like little logs, and then we uh, bread it and deep fry it. And the batter we use resembles fried chicken, so they come out looking like chicken fingers. We do the same thing with cauliflower. So we take and chop up cauliflower, deep fry it, and it resembles the same thing like, like giant chicken nuggets. And because of the breading, the, it's really, really good. It doesn't even matter what's inside. Um, but with jackfruit, it gives it a, a meat-like texture, a bit softer than meat. And then with cauliflower, because it's such a, um, a strong vegetable, it holds up well in the grease, and so you can get a bit of that crunch as well. Um, other items are uh, collard greens, um, uh, or we use mustard greens or, or turnip greens, um, shepherd's pie, jambalaya, which is a, a kind of a southern version of a paella. Um, those are the ones we've been cooking lately. I don't know if the mic picked that up, but my tummy just grumbled so much when you were talking <laughs> about the jackfruit. So that's at the Sydney Vegan Market every month. Correct, at the Entertainment Quarter at Moore Park. And I imagine there's a huge queue for Southern Soul every week. <laughs> there, there can be. There can be. We, the last one uh, last month was a bit lighter because it fell on Anzac Day. Yeah. Um, but if you want to come see us, I suggest getting there. It's from 9 to 4. The next one is um, in a couple of weeks. Get there between 9 and noon. After, after noon until into the 1 o'clock hour, we're going to start to sell out. Um, so get to us early if you can. What does it mean for you to be making soul food here in Australia? And you're making it with your mother-in-law as well, aren't you? Did she move here? Correct. Yeah. So my wife actually helped move her entire family here. So her mother, her father, her sister, her husband, um, her sister's husband, that is, and um, their four girls. They're all here now. Um, and so for us, it was honestly something I never would have imagined, you know, eight years ago when we moved over. I never would have imagined that, well, I guess until I got here, that would have such a strong interest and such a strong following. But it's great to be able to sell and introduce your home and the authentic version of where you're from and what it actually tastes like to people who are interested and to people who also have been to some of the places. I'd say Australians, you know, before COVID were probably better traveled in the U.S. than even I am. And so uh, some people would have heard of Raleigh. Um, they may not pronounce it correctly, which is, <laughs> that's fine. You know, we're not, we're not Vegas or New York, so, you know, totally fine. But for people that have such a passion and interest about the food was also really um, surprising. What's the next song you've chosen for today? So the next song uh, would be Gregory Porter, Holding On. Um, I chose that one because 
it came it came out at a time where we were going out in Sydney before we had kids. Sydney nightlife was great. There was a lot of great small music venues, kind of before, um, I guess, before the reaction to King hits um, and before like the lockout rules kind of uh, put a damper on things. Gregory Porter was an American, is an American, um, mostly blues and jazz artist. And the concert we went to was at the basement at Circular Key. And it was probably the best concert I've been to out here. It was an intimate setting. Um, we got there early, so we got a table right up front. Um, and then as part of his band, the pianist was actually from Durham, North Carolina. Very small world. Um, and I didn't get a chance to speak to him because after the set, after the concert, he looked like he really had to use the bathroom. So I, I didn't want to <laughs> hold him up from, from, from the bathroom. So I, I definitely let him go. But it was it was a great concert. And so whenever I hear that song, I think about um, just the, the fun we had going to different music venues in Sydney and discovering new acts, seeing acts from the States and, and just having, yeah, a great time getting to know our new home. You're tuned into Out of the Box on FBI Radio 94.5. This is Holding On by Gregory Porter. Holding on. It was Gregory Porter on FBI Radio 94.5. My name is Mia Hull, and right now on Out of the Box, I'm joined by Sweatshot Literacy Movement writer Tyree Barnett. How did you become involved with Sweatshop, Tyree? Funny story. My wife got tired of re- reading my bad writing at the time. And so um, she was looking around, and she found a workshop, a writer's workshop in Western Sydney. At the time, it was at their the new city campus of Western Sydney University. And a friend of ours also happened to be going or happened to hear about that same workshop. I don't, she wasn't able to go at the time. So the workshop was on a Saturday. It was with Winnie Dunn and Dr. Michael Muhammad Ahmad were there. Um, And I showed up on a Saturday afternoon and I was the only one to show up. Um, The workshop was publicized. It was on Facebook. You know, I saw it. Um, And it was just them. And it was uh, another student writers group from Western Sydney. And so after a little while talking with Winnie and Muhammad, they said, look, you seem like um, a, a pretty dedicated you know, writer. It seems like you have ideas. And so they're like, let's just go. Um, no, one's else, no one else is gonna show up. This is kind of a, uh, of, of a done deal. And so we just went to a pizza restaurant off Church Street in Parramatta, and we just talked about myself, where I was from, um, the writing I'd done to that point and what sweatshop was, how they could assist me. Um, and yeah, it was, it was a really, uh, uh, happenstance and I was very excited and very curious, um, as to what uh, the success that they'd had with other writers. And it was something that I was looking for and I, you know, and, um, it had always been a, a dream of mine to be a writer, but I didn't know where to start and I didn't know that you could make a living out of just writing. And so it was always something that I kind of done on the side with, you know, a bit of dedication where I could. And so from there, that was maybe three and a half years ago now, something like that. From there, I continued going to the to the workshops on a fortnightly basis and just getting better, getting more polished and kind of abandoning the uh, the, the novel I had um, three four quarters of the way through 
just because it was it was poor. It was bad writing, but it was it was something good for me to um, just look at and realize the mistakes I'd made and realize how to do it better. I was doing all of the mistakes that writers make, and um, especially new writers. And so it was, uh, and I had, I had never, I hadn't, unlike the other writers, I hadn't gone to university to study writing. Um, I didn't major or minor in it, so I had no um, educational background in terms of technique, um, in terms of uh, histories and trends and any of that. So anything they tell me, I'm always jotting down. I may not get to read it for a few months or look it up, but I will eventually get to it because all of it is an education for me. That's really interesting because we've had two sweatshop writers on Out of the Box before. We've had the general manager, Winnie Dunn, who you mentioned before, and Shirley Lay, both of whom had gone and studied writing at university and they were coming at it from the perspective of a writer. Yeah, I'm, I'm interested in what it's like to kind of go in as someone who hadn't really done any writing before other than the novel that you were working on. Shirley Lay, who was on the show a few weeks ago, talked about the upcoming, well, it's now out, anthology. It's titled Racism, Stories of Fear, Hate and Bigotry. There you go. Yeah, we've got it here, right here in the studio. (laughs) Your writing is featured in that. Tell me about that. What was it like to make that anthology? Yes, it was Something I did not expect, the piece that was featured is called Invasions, uh, and it was a piece I started working on maybe two years ago to show you how long kind of things take, especially for for someone like myself who's time poor and who doesn't have a lot of background in writing. Um, So after maybe the second draft, Muhammad said, look, we're gonna we're gonna publish this, and and that's one thing I appreciate is that the writing you do for Sweatshop it does reach the light of day, it does reach the reader, it does get published. You just have to stick with it and and see it through to the final product. Um, and so after the first, second kind of draft, he said, I think we could publish this in an upcoming anthology. And then later on, it was revealed that the anthology would be racism. And then later on, it was revealed that it would be the lead story. And then from there, it was revealed that it's actually the cover took its inspiration from the story. Um, so that was a very much an unexpected honor. Um, and, and a testament to, like, you know, if you put the work in, you do get the rewards. Um, and Invasions was basically a fictionalized account of an encounter I had in Vanuatu on the island of Santo with, um, we were at a, uh, a beach. Uh, a lot of the, uh, the property there tends to be private. So if you go to certain beaches, they're owned by people in the local village. You pay a donation to enter the private property because it's theirs. They give you basic accommodation. They give you free reign to, you know, explore the blue hole of the beach or whatever you like. Um, and so the encounter I had was some uh, sounded Eastern European tourists just almost trespassed onto the property. They, they kind of drove in and then just refused to pay the donation. And so there was a real back and forth between the local villagers and the um, tourists on why they wouldn't pay. Ultimately, they left without paying. They took a lot of pictures and lingered, but they left without paying. And so I use that story to touch on geopolitics, microaggressions, and kind of what I call the black hierarchy um, that exists globally and how people look at other people of color and classify them. And that's one of 39 stories that can be found in Sweatshop's latest anthology. I'll pop a link to that up in the programs page on fbiradio.com. Just click on Out of the Box and you can find all those links there. Tyree, what does the future look like for you? 
Uh, future looks bright and busy. Uh, we're we're um, I've got uh, a a great opportunity with a firm press uh, out of Melbourne to do a mentorship with them to work on my first novel, and so that work is underway. Um, an extended version of Invasions will be in the uh, novel as well, um, and also with. Southern Soul, we're looking at how to ramp that up and expand that. We're looking at options to um, do some home meal delivery. So that way we, we can reach more of Sydney and more of um, the surrounding uh, Sydney, Newcastle and, and Wollongong and wherever we can go um, without it being so taxing on us to get more people more exposed to Southern traditional food. Um, and other than that, the, the two boys are continuing to grow, continuing to make milestones. Um, so... Yeah, I'm very excited about what's to come, uh, especially over the next couple of years. I think a lot of things will come to fruition. Amazing. Tyree, yeah. thank you so much for joining me today on Out of the Box. No worries. Thanks for having me. What song would you like to finish on today? So I've chosen uh, The Best Things in Life Are Free by Janet Jackson and Luther Vandross. This is, again, going back to my childhood, uh, trips to the beach in South Carolina, um, Car trips would always be punctuated by this song playing hopefully at least three times on the radio. And every time it came on, it would be the first time. And I asked my parents to turn it up to, to play it um, because it was very, it was a great song and it's very nostalgic for me as well. Two of uh, he, uh, my musical heroes from that time of, uh, of music. The best things in life are free. It's Janet Jackson and Luther Vandross on FBI Radio 94.5. Thanks so much for tuning in to Out of the Box today. You can listen back to this episode on the podcast or on the program's page at fbiradio.com. Big shout out to producer Louisa for doing all the prep for this show. Thanks so much. Bye. Don't you know?